I've been aware since I came to assumption that my liturgical style is different than Father Scott's. I saw him celebrate a funeral uh, for Pat Malahan, and it explained a lot to me. The way he engages with the liturgy, the way he engages with people in the liturgy, that sort of thing. And so I, I can see where a lot of the disconnect is coming from. And I've been thinking, even before that funeral, at some point I would like to talk to the parish about liturgy. Because if I talk to the parish about liturgy, it will explain a lot of the way I do things and the way I have been adjusting myself, and even why I'm so serious during Mass, even when I try to be very personal outside of Mass. And so I've known that there's a need to talk about liturgy for a while, and I've been praying about how to do that. Well, the conclusion I've come to is that I would like to spend the homilies from now into, through Lent, and maybe one or two into Easter, talking about the Mass. I just want to talk about the Mass. What is the Mass? What are the parts of the Mass? Especially, what are all of the different symbols of the Mass? We are here Sunday after Sunday, but if we don't understand what the Mass is or what all of the different elements of it are, it's hard for us to really enter into the beautiful worship and the beautiful mysteries that are present here. So, when I was praying about that, I realized that there was going to be a trade-off. I could either try to shoehorn the liturgical topics into the series of readings, or I could try to do what Protestant pastors often do, which is do a series of homilies, like a mass series. Well, I decided to do the mass series, which means that I'm not going to be speaking directly on the readings very often over the next two months. And I want to start by apologizing for that. The readings, the scriptures, are deep and they are rich and they are the word of God. They are the voice of God continuing to speak to us in our modern times. We should never stray too far from the scriptures. I've made a prudential decision for the next couple homilies to do that strain, but I need to go back at some point. And my hope for you is twofold. One, I hope that you continue to read the Sunday readings at home and to pray over them with your family and your friends. It is essential that we continue to listen to the Word of God and pray over it. Second, because this series is going to continue into Lent, I'm hoping that we can make this Lent a liturgically focused Lent. There are a lot of things we can do during Lent, but this year, because I'm preaching on it, one thing you might consider as you have a few weeks before Ash Wednesday, is maybe this Lent I'm going to try going to daily Mass, just to see what that's like. Or maybe this Lent I'm going to read a book on the Mass, just to tie in with what we're going to talk about. So, there's the preface. Today, however, I am not going to talk about the Mass. I am going to talk about baptism. One, baptism of the Lord, very helpful. Two, you get to see baptisms today, very helpful. Three, Baptism is the foundation of our life in Christ. Our spiritual life begins with baptism. And so to talk about baptism first, before we ever talk about the Mass, not just fits with today, but is theologically very appropriate. Now, I've given this homily twice already. I think of it as my fun facts homily. Everything is just going to be a bunch of fun facts about baptism as I explain the rite. Some of you enjoy fun facts homilies, some of you do not. And there we are. 
The principal and foundational baptismal liturgy is not, as we might suppose, the baptism of children, but is instead the baptism of adults. This is because Catholic liturgy and Catholic sacraments always build off of and continue the practices of early generations of Christians. In the first centuries of the faith, the majority of Christians were converts, meaning the majority of baptisms were for adults. This only changed with the legalization of Christianity in the fourth century. But by then, our sacramental formulae and practices had begun to solidify, and it has continued to be the adult baptismal liturgy of the Easter Vigil, which serves as our starting point. Nevertheless, I'm going to focus on the rite for the baptism of infants today, since that is what most of us experience on a regular basis. Just remember throughout that the liturgy for infant baptism is a modification of an adult baptism. And keep in mind also that by default, infant baptism is its own stand-alone liturgy. When we add it into the Mass, like we're doing this morning, that is a further modification of the original liturgical practice. Now, to understand the symbols of the baptismal liturgy, we first have to understand the theological purpose of the sacrament. The original and most important effect of baptism is unity with Christ, specifically unity with him in his death and resurrection. That comes to us straight from the letters of Paul. It is through baptism that we join ourselves to Jesus and through him participate in the inner life of the Trinity. This is why many theologians believe that Jesus chose to be baptized. Because the idea that baptism brings unity with him is more powerful if we can see that he himself experienced baptism. Now, because baptism brings us unity with Christ, it also has three other effects. First, it unites us to the body of Christ, the Church. This is true whether a person is Catholic or not. Because we believe in only one baptism, we believe that even our Protestant and non-denominational brothers and sisters are brought into communion with the Church through baptism, even if that communion remains imperfect because of our differences. Second, baptism washes away our sins, including original sin, because sin cannot coexist with Jesus. The resurrection was Jesus' victory over sin and death. So if baptism unites us to the resurrection of Jesus, and it does, then at the moment of our baptism, when we are perfectly united with him, we share perfectly in Jesus' victory over sin. The sin disappears. Finally, baptism opens us to sacramental grace. Our unity with Jesus in baptism permanently configures our souls to be receptive to his work in us, including and especially his work in the sacraments. You can't receive another sacrament if you haven't been baptized. Now, to the ritual itself. The baptismal liturgy, as you experienced already this morning, begins at the door of the church building. 
as a sign that the unbaptized person is not yet a member of the church. This is why baptismal fonts are supposed to be located near the entrance of church buildings, as a constant reminder that we can only enter the church through baptism. When Assumption was originally built, the room we are currently using for confessions was instead a special room for baptisms called a baptistry, located, you'll notice, immediately inside the old main doors of the church. Once most people began entering the church from the parking lot, however, and once we added the gathering space, we constructed a baptismal font here in this entrance. This is also why we sign ourselves with holy water when we enter a church building, as a reminder of our own baptism, through which we first became members of the church. Also of note, though few couples choose this option at their weddings, the marriage liturgy and the funeral liturgy are both supposed to begin with the minister greeting the couple or the body at the doors of the church, as a way of explicitly connecting those two pivotal life moments back to the moment of baptism. At the doors, the minister asks the parents and godparents to explicitly affirm that they desire baptism and are willing to take on the responsibilities that it entails. Since the early days of the church, there has been a debate about whether it is appropriate to baptize infants and whether it is appropriate to allow parents and godparents to speak on behalf of the child. But we would do well to remember, again, the primary purpose of baptism is unity with Christ. A child born into a Christian family is presumably going to be raised to love and worship Jesus. Just by raising the child, the parents and godparents are already making a commitment of faith on behalf of the child. They are already bringing that child into unity with Jesus. It would not make sense to have a child raised in the faith, but living apart from the body of Christ because of a lack of baptism. Once the parents and godparents have requested baptism, the child is received into the church, where all in attendance hear the word of God and a homily in preparation for the sacrament. When baptism is combined with Mass, the readings of the Mass replace the baptismal readings, and the baptismal intercessions are added onto the normal intercessions. Following the intercessions, there is a litany of the saints. We see the litany, as far as I can tell, only in three sacraments. We see it in baptism, we see it in confirmation, which is an extension of baptism, and we see it in holy orders. These are the three sacraments that permanently change our souls. They are so grand and awe-inspiring. They are, in a sense, so fearful, these sacraments, that we have to ask the saints to assist us before we can undertake them. Following the litany of the saints, there is the anointing with the oil of catechumens. Now again, based on the adult baptismal liturgy, Adults have to spend somewhere between one and three years as a catechumen before they can be baptized, whereas children might spend one to three months as a catechumen. But we still anoint them with the oil of catechumens, 
as a recognition of their unity with the adult baptismal rite, as basically a recognition of their status as catechumens, even for a moment before we actually baptize them. Finally, once all of that is completed, the baptismal party arrives at the baptismal font. Now, traditionally, and I'm very glad Assumption has maintained this tradition, baptismal fonts are eight-sided. Our original font in the confessional has eight sides. This new font has eight sides. This is because the original act of creation took seven days. The eighth day is symbolically the beginning of a new creation, God's recreation of our fallen world. Saturday, the Sabbath, was the seventh day, which is why the resurrection, the first act of the new creation, occurred on Sunday, the eighth day. Similarly, baptism is our participation in the new creation, our recreation in Christ by unity with his resurrection. So baptismal fonts have eight sides representing the eighth day. Once everyone has arrived at the font, the minister blesses the water with a beautiful prayer recalling all of the ways in which God has used water to save his people throughout creation and the Old Testament. After this, the parents and godparents are asked to reaffirm their faith using the ancient Roman baptismal affirmation that today we refer to as the Apostles' Creed. It is not that this creed existed first and then we put it into baptism. It's actually that we were using this creed during baptisms and then we pulled it out to use as a separate creed. The parents and godparents must recite the creed again because if we are assuming their child is going to be raised in unity with Christ and the church, we need to make sure the parents and godparents believe the same things that the church believes. Following this, the child is baptized. A valid baptism must always use pure water that is flowing or moving in some way. We achieve that flowing or moving today through pouring or through immersion. The baptismal formula must also always be Trinitarian. These things are essential because the Church can only perform the sacraments as they were given to us by Jesus and the Apostles. Jesus' own baptism was in moving water, as were all of the baptisms performed by the apostles. And Jesus' own baptism was Trinitarian. You have the Son being baptized, the voice of the Father, and the Spirit descending like a dove. Similarly, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus specifically tells us that we must baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Catholic Church only recognizes baptisms done according to this formula. But we recognize all baptisms done according to this formula, even if they are done in a non-Catholic Christian church. When baptism was primarily done by immersion, that's the dunking, the early Christians saw in that act a symbol of the tomb. When a person is plunged under the water, that represents their unity with the death of Jesus. And when they are brought back up again, that represents their unity with the resurrection of Jesus. In the Latin Church today, we don't immerse infants, but I've seen videos of Eastern priests taking an entire infant 
and taking the infant all the way through and under the water before the infant even knows what happens. It's incredible. Look it up on YouTube. Note also that a person's name is always used during the baptism. The priest has to say, Name, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is something that only happens here and at confirmation, which again is an extension of baptism, and in none of the other sacraments. This shows us how personal baptism is. God recreates us personally. Following the baptism, there are various signs reflecting the effect of baptism. First is the anointing with chrism oil. In the earliest centuries, this was actually the moment of confirmation, and it still is the moment of confirmation in the Eastern churches. But in the Latin church, we decided to hold off on confirmation until the bishop himself could do it. So we replaced it with a non-sacramental anointing with the same chrism oil, as a reminder to all of us that our baptism is not truly complete until after we receive confirmation. Notice also that the anointing with chrism is accompanied by a prayer, mentioning that the child being anointed has been anointed priest, prophet, and king. Each of these Old Testament offices received an anointing with oil, and our anointing is a symbol that When we are united to Jesus, we also share in his offices of priest, prophet, and king. After the anointing comes the recognition of the white garment, an outward sign of the cleansing from sin that comes from unity with Christ. This is also why a priest always has to wear an alb, the white garment underneath all of my other garments, because every other ministry is built off of baptism. The chasuble, the priestly garment, goes over the alb, the baptismal garment. Following that comes the candle, handed on to the parents and godparents as a reminder that it is their responsibility to foster and maintain the faith of the child as it grows older. But notice that these candles are always lit from the paschal candle, the candle that was used during the baptismal liturgy at the Easter Vigil. Here again, we see an explicit connection between the normative baptismal liturgy of adults at the vigil and the modified baptismal liturgy of children throughout the year. After this, there is the Ephatha rite, where the priest signs the mouth and ears of the child with the sign of the cross, accompanied by a prayer that the child will grow up to hear and to preach the word of God. Now, Unfortunately, there is a translation issue. This prayer still uses the older English translation, deaf and dumb, which is rather uncouth in today's parlance. You can chat with your deaf friends about why this is. So when I do this right during a Mass, I say it quietly. It is possible that the soon-to-be-released updated translation of the rite of baptism will change this to deaf and mute, which is less problematic, but no promises. Now, finally, as with most liturgies, the rite of baptism ends with a blessing and sending forth. Every sacramental grace is oriented not just toward ourselves, but toward the world. And so we end these liturgies with a blessing and a sending forth. 
I like fun fact homilies, and some of you do, but some of you don't. So I'm going to end with a quick spiritual note in case you need something spiritual to chew on this week. Everything in the rite of baptism is a tangible symbol of our unity with Jesus. At the moment of our baptism, we are perfectly united to Christ. This means that at our baptism, we are perfectly united to Christ at his baptism, where the Father spoke the words, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Our unity with Jesus through baptism is so perfect that we can say with confidence that the Father speaks these words over us as well. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. The Father speaks these words over all of us at the moment of our baptism and every day for the rest of our life. We will find great healing and great closeness with the Lord if we can remind ourselves to hear these words every day. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased.